Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is prize-winning journalist and author Elizabeth Colbert. Her book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. Her most recent book is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, which was published last year. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me. So, you know, I thought I thought we could kind of get started um, by zooming out a little bit. Um, you know, you've you've had a, a a wonderful career as an environmental journalist and writer um, over some time, and um, I thought, you know, I was curious to think to hear a little bit uh, from you about how just the field of journalism has changed and developed uh, over the course of your career, specifically kind of environmental journalism, and um, you know what some of the the the, the good things that have developed in that period of time and what some of the, the downsides have been? <laughs> well, you know, as they say, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, when <laughs> I started out, I was really, I started out in, in journalism. I wouldn't say in environmental journalism. I, I started out at the times really doing political reporting in the eighties. And, you know, this was before anyone had, or anyone in the wide world had really even heard about the web or conceived of it. So everything was either, you know, in print or on the radio or on TV. And the channels of communication were pretty clear. Um, And, you know, that has obviously changed really dramatically uh, over time. And I think that has had certain you know, positive effects, obviously, that we now get a lot, can get a lot of information from all around the world. You know, if I, if I want to, I can read newspapers from all around the world, um, watch TV sometimes from all around the world. But, you know, it's also had the effect of, on the one hand, really hollowing out, you know, what we would call the sort of mainstream media. It, 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 it's very difficult to, um, the economics have completely changed, very difficult to make them work. Uh, I think that's been, you know, very hard on projects that are expensive to do, which, you know, newspapers like the times, which I worked for for many years and the New Yorker and all of the publications people are familiar with, you know, used to, uh, sponsor, you know, it's, that's getting tougher and tougher. So I think that's, a, that's a, um, a loss, I will say. And I think that, you know, I, nothing that your listeners don't know, but obviously the way the web has become a, a font, not just of information, of, but of misinformation. Uh, I don't know that anyone who idealistically thought of, you know, information wanting to be free also, thought of disinformation Hmm. to be free, but that I think has, you know, really radically transformed our politics in ways that, you know, I think are very dangerous. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw uh, from your bio that you had spent some time in in Albany working for the Times as the bureau chief there in the early 1990s. And I actually spent um, some time in Albany uh, working for environmental advocacy groups. And I remember um, a little bit later than that, but but in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. And at that time, you still met face to face with people. You know, when you you would chat with a reporter, you know, uh, like a notebook would come out and and folks would uh, take shorthand. And it was such a 
I don't know. It was just a very different experience than, than these days where so much is done over email and um, it's, it's a very quick, it's, it's much less of a face-to-face relationship. But, but for your work, it seems that you're still able to carve out a, a lot of time to um, chat with people individually and you know, go on location and um, really kind of immerse yourself in, uh, in, in this work, which is, which is really wonderful. And I wonder if you think more generally, again, kind of in the profession, something is lost when, when everything is just kind of converted over to you know, screen time and you don't get out of the office and um, you don't build those kinds of personal relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, I think one of the problems that we have with journalism now, and it's both built into the cost structure and it's built into the web structure and it's uh, built into everything being done remotely now, or a lot of things being done remotely now is just everything gets you know recycled and you don't get, I think, you know, I'm not sure where people even get their ideas, but as, as you're alluding to, I assume going to the LCA room, which was the legislative mm-hmm. correspondence association <laughs> yep. in the New York state Capitol, which, um, you know, most people have never been to, but was a wonderful yeah. sort of place. It was simply, it had a lot of lore to it. There were old poker hands on the wall that the reporters had put up. And I don't want to, you know, sort of romanticize the days right. of, you know, the guys playing poker up on the shelf, but, I think that, you know, I don't know how young reporters now starting out, you know, especially during COVID, obviously, you know, one had sources. Is that is that mm-hmm. good, bad? You know, that's sort of the way journalism has always worked. I don't honestly know exactly how the LCA functions these days. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, at least aesthetically, it seems um uh, so, something's lost, but you're right. I mean, you know, it, it's it's also important not to nostalgize the the past. But you still get out into the field quite a bit, so you it it, it seems like in any case, so it's it's it seems like that remains an important part of how you how you do your work. Well, I mean, when you do a longer form piece, you know, for the New Yorker or really almost any publication, it's pretty hard to do it completely unless it's you know what we would in the journalism biz call a think piece where you're just sort of taking an issue and, and, you know, thinking about it or talking to people who are thinking about it. If you're really reporting a story that has a, you know, people sort of moving through place and time, um, you almost, you have to get out there. And that, that is where I think, um, you know, the, what you know the value of long-form journalism but it does get back to the point i was making before that that's getting harder and harder to support mm-hmm. both the time and the travel you know it's expensive um and so i that's why i think we see you know more and more well we see two things you know one we just see more and more sort of recycled content something mm-hmm. gets written and it just gets you know blasted everywhere and that's not really very useful in my view um but you know, you also are seeing people trying to come up with creative ways, like, you know, sort of nonprofit journalism, trying to um, figure out ways to support serious journalism without the economic, you know, in the absence of the economic model that that had worked for quite a while. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see, how, you know, how that all goes in the future. That certainly the trend line is, um, has just put an enormous amount of pressure on on the industry. But um 
but other things, you know, like and as you say, the internet makes it a lot easier for folks to um, to certain types of research and communicate with a broader audience. So maybe just transitioning over to to your recent book, Under a White Sky. Um, you know, in a sense, a book like that could have been written. Um, you know, very abstractly. You know, there have been versions uh, of some of the themes that you talk about in that in that book um, that are written very abstractly. But obviously, in in that um, in the book, really, you're collecting these stories um, at a you know a very kind of ground level, and, and that it makes it all extremely compelling. Um, I guess very abstractly, it's you know the way I read it is a kind of a book about unintended consequences and and also tragic choices in in different ways that people relate to the environment. Um, and there's a bunch of really just extraordinarily interesting uh, individual stories there. W one that kind of caught my attention, I'm sure caught many other readers, is um, is the is the story on gene drives. Um, which are really just a fascinating topic. I think there's just a whiz-bang element to gene drives uh, and just the incredible kind of science and engineering behind it, but also some of the, um, obviously, the environmental challenges and risks that you talk about in the book. But one of the things that kind of strikes me about that particular case is there's just this element of a tragic choice to the um, to the technology, because on the one hand, um, it carries these risks, like really serious risks. On the other hand, you know, we could be talking about a technology that could end malaria, which would have and just absolutely staggering um, benefits for human well-being. So, um, when you were kind of doing research on that, how, what what struck you about about in particular kind of gene drives and and the story that they can or what they tell us more broadly about human in, interactions with the environment? Well, I guess I'll start by sort of explaining what gene drive is, yeah. and, and then we can go from there. So gene drive um, occurs naturally. It it just means genes that have um, figured out a way to evade the normal rules of heredity whereby if you're a gene and I, sh I should say you're really a gene variant or an, an allele as the geneticists would say you would get um passed down 50 50 percent of the time so so you'd you know sort of tend to dilute over time if you do gene if you have gene drive and as i say there are many many natural gene drives or driving genes i guess they'd be called uh you get passed down more than 50 percent of the time you've if you figured out a way to, you know, sort of get your genetic material into the next generation uh, more than 50% of the time. And um, synthetic gene drive, which is what you and I are talking about, means that you basically use um, this new kind of gene editing tool known as CRISPR. You basically program the organism, you program the gene to get passed along on along with the instructions to get passed along more than 50% of the time. How's that? And, um, you know, in theory, you could get passed on 100% of the time. And that's very, very powerful if you're trying to um, genetically engineer something and then pass that trait down, obviously. And the gene drive, the kind of gene drive that you're talking about with malaria, malaria carrying mosquitoes, it's called a suppression drive. And what you would do is you actually build in a um, some kind of something that interferes with reproduction usually, and you know, in a normal course of events, obviously, if you had such a dangerous and damaging gene variant, it would drop out of the gene pool, but instead it spreads using gene drive, and eventually the population crashes. That's the idea. 
And um, these gene-driving mosquitoes exist in lab tests. They have, you know, populations crash, just as predicted. Um, they're in very high secure facilities in Italy right now. Um, I think that the question of, and, and they've also, there's a lot of talk, talk at this point of, could you use it for conservation purposes? That's what I mm-hmm. look at in the book, for example, to eliminate invasive rodents on islands, for example. Now, the problem with the technology, you know, the good thing about the technology is it's incredibly powerful. And the problem with the technology is that it's incredibly powerful. Right. And so, you know, the people, some people who were among the earliest people to do gene drive organisms have really renounced it. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a little bit like inventing the atom bomb. You know, mm-hmm. uh, do you really want this out in the world? And we haven't answered that question, honestly. We And I think one of the sort of themes of Under a White Sky is that we are extremely technologically proficient, but, you know, our ethics and our politics are can't keep up with our technologies. So we have these very powerful technologies that we don't really know what to do with um, because we are pretty bad at, at governing them and controlling them. And so, you know, whether gene drive should forever remain in a lab or not mm-hmm. is a pretty profound question that we lack even sort of the mechanisms to answer. Yeah. Yeah. And just speaking of the kind of the political, cultural, moral failures associated with these, I mean, one of the things that just strikes me about the, in particular, the malaria case is I suspect that if we, you know, had very serious malaria happening in Europe or the United States, um, this debate would have been over and we would have, we would have actually engaged in this. Um, the technology would be out. We would be using it. It's, it's possible, but I do, I do want to say that um, I, well, there's two, two points that I'll raise. First of all, the Europeans are very, you know, the Europeans, and this shows a split, you know, the Europeans are very anti-genetically modified mm-hmm. crops. We That's eat, true. You know, everything, all our corn, all our soy virtually Mm -hmm. is GMO at this point. And we, even people who are anti-GMOs are eating it. You know, that's a fact of the matter. Um, Now, you know, for better or worse. And the Europeans have really um, blocked that. And in in doing so, they've really blocked a lot of other countries from doing it too, because they don't take exports of GMOs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know that we can say, even though, you know, by a lot of people's accounts, GMOs are absolutely crucial to feeding the world. Um, So I'm not sure that we, I don't know. I don't know what reaction would be. How's that? But that, but you raise an interesting point, A. And and B, I do have to put one, you know, sort of caveat in here, which is having not released these things into the world, you know, there's a lot of questions about whether, you know, they will work out in the world. You're, mm-hmm. you're encountering, you know, you're putting unbelievable selective pressure on the organisms that f- genetically sort of figure out a way to evade this, right? If, if, if you're mm-hmm. trying to make the population crash, well, if I have a new mutation that allows me to subvert this, um, then I am going to be incredibly successful. So it's not clear whether, you know, when lab technology meets the real world of mosquitoes, that this will work, to be honest. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I should I should be clear too. Just because I think the Europeans or the or the U.S. would would use the technology if you know if we if if we face the threat doesn't necessarily mean I think it's a good idea. <laughs> uh, I, I hear I hear you completely, and I think that it will be a very interesting question. I think you know it it, it definitely you know the idea is to release them in Africa where there are high malaria rates and whether and you know obviously has to be done um in in consultation with the people on mm-hmm. on the ground and whether they will welcome it or revile it you know is that we haven't even gotten there yet right right yeah i mean just to reiterate the point that you make is that you know uh, once you put genes into the world it's really unclear what will happen with them you have cross you can have crossover you can obviously as you said there's an incredible amount of pressure and and if you have a a small mutation which is going to happen i mean mutations happen <laughs> uh, that we know and so um yeah it's a very tricky thing i mean if it's a very risky technology if it works it's potentially even a risky technology if it only partly works but it also mm-hmm. is a very um you know, you know, life finds a way, as they say, and um, mm-hmm. as Michael Crichton said, and uh, I don't, I think, I think if, you know, I think if a fair number of, of, of biochemists or molecular biologists are, are somewhat skeptical that, you know, you could really, um, you could maybe do it in a very small controlled space, you know, mm-hmm. but where there's a lot of um, movement and mosquitoes are, you know, pretty mobile. Mm-hmm. Um whether you could really, whether it would would really work, or whether you you know just get new populations coming in. Yeah. Um, so um, another technology that you kind of talk about towards the end of the book is is geoengineering. I, and I don't know at some level if if you're interested in all of these technologies independently, or if there's in a sense there's something of a each of them are a metaphor for the for the risks of geoengineering. Um, but maybe we, we could just kind of introduce the the geoengineering that, that you're that you're interested in and explored in the book. And then what I always think is kind of the most frightening prospect with with geoengineering is I kind of think of as like the the spring action, you know, or or kind of what happens if we stop geoengineering, basically, um, and the kind of consequences of that. So, um, so maybe just one question was: Was geoengineering the thing that kind of brought you broadly to the to the theme of the book, or or did it happen naturally? And then, you know, maybe we could talk about geoengineering specifically a little bit. Well, the book emerged sort of out of um, this question of, of of what are we going to do? You know, we we have um, more and more ways in which we realize that, you know, we, we are dominating natural systems and we don't like Mm -hmm. the results of that. And, you know, gene drive is, is one example of the technology you could use to try to um, assert a new form of control over, over a biological system. Um, You know, definitely the stories in the, in the book are sort of fables. They are fables. They are, you know, um, they could have, could be, the details could be very different, but the idea that, you know, sort of the sorcerer's apprentice that you, you think you're, you know, you think you're going to control something, things get out of control. 
um, that that's definitely, <laughs> you know, the theme of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely geoengineering was always going to be the ultimate, you know, sort of example of that. Yes. So, um, so you know, there's a couple of different technologies that folks that folks talk about. There's the, you know, shooting mirrors into space. There's, you know, placing various kinds of chemicals uh, in the upper atmospheres. Obviously, there's two. We should say there's two different general types of geoengineering. There's sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, which is usually understood to be quite a bit less dangerous. And then there's the solar reflectivity stuff of reducing the amount of solar radiation that makes its way to the Earth's surface. So it's really the latter that that um, and you talk about both in the book, but it's really the latter that raises this kind of sorcerer's apprentice problem. Yeah, I mean, they both, I mean, I think that um, the the first kind, second carbon out of the air is sort of left the realm of geoengineering these days. It's more referred to as carbon dioxide removal or negative emissions. And the interesting thing about that, and I would just raise because I do think it's very significant and you're going to, people are going to be hearing more and more about it is that, you know, we don't have technologies that can do this at large scales at this point, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with any kind of, um, economic or, you know, um, energetic efficiency. (laughs) Um, but we're depending on them already. They're sort of built into the calculations of the IPCC of the UN of like how we're going to stay you know, even below two degrees C, which is considered, you know, a limit you definitely don't want to pass. So we have the whole conversation around climate change to the extent that, you know, there is a conversation around climate change. It's already in there. And I think that that is a sign, really a sign of just how insane our world is right now. Yes. Uh, to be frank. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's, so that's one thing. So I do visit this very small project in Iceland where they are removing carbon from the air, sucking it out of the air and, and converting it into rock, which is a very, you know, sounds quite cool mm-hmm. and is quite cool, um, but takes energy. So then there's a question of, okay, well, you know, why are we doing right. this uh, when we, you know, basically are putting up carbon to produce energy. So it's mm-hmm. kind of got this weird circular logic. Um, so that is one chapter. And then then the ultimate geoengineering, solar geoengineering, which, as you say, involves literally blocking, dimming the sun, you know, having less direct sunlight hit the earth. And the way that that's usually the mirrors in space is kind of a futuristic concept and perhaps, you know, we'll get there. I don't think in our lifetimes, but mm-hmm. more kind of plausible right now is you would mimic volcanoes. Volcanic eruptions put a lot of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, a very major eruption. And we have, you know, very good evidence from previous volcanic eruptions that mm-hmm. that cools the earth that the the sulfur dioxide forms these little um droplets that are very reflective and they reflect sunlight back to space and you get a temporary cooling effect and if you just kept replenishing that you could have you know sort of a semi-permanent cooling effect now you know the problems with this are you know myriad (laughs) um and they range from you know changing the color of the sky that's why the book is called under the white sky uh, to potentially changing regional weather patterns, messing around with the monsoons. And, you know, so it raises a tremendous number of questions. Now, the, the problem is, and this gets back to how messed up our world is, 
you can't measure geoengineering, the risks of geoengineering against the risks of a stable climate. You have right. to measure them against the risks of the way we're already messing with the climate, which is super profound. You know, I, uh, I can't emphasize that enough. It's really serious what we're doing. Um, so, you know, are we going to reach a point where we're going to say, well, you know, this is so bad, what we've got is so bad, uh, we're going to have to try geoengineering? I fear that's not impossible. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then the, you know, it starts to look attractive, I think, for, for a lot of folks. I mean, I, there are some economically minded people in the world who would say, well, wait a second, what are the costs of this geoengineering enterprise? You know, it's just a, a flying a few jets around and, um, you know, decarbonizing the whole global economy is a lot more expensive. So why haven't we been talking about this the whole time? Um, yeah, and- I do think, I mean, if we get into that situation, then we are really and truly screwed because, <laughs> um, you know, you can't geoengineer your way out of perpetual carbon emissions. Or if you do, you are really talking about putting a lot of stuff into Mm -hmm. the stratosphere. You are really, you know, carbon dioxide emissions are cumulative, right? So they stay up there Mm -hmm. a long time. If you keep emitting carbon at anywhere near the rate that we are doing, or, you know, uh, you have to keep ratcheting up what you're putting in the stratosphere. So any sort of (laughs) semi-responsible geoengineering plan involves getting to net zero, but using geoengineering as a kind of um, palliative, you know, for that Mm -hmm. time when you reach peak heat, if that makes sense, um, to cut the top off of that peak heat. If you keep on, if you think, if you think, and I'm sure there are people out there who are thinking this, but they are wrong. (laughs) If you think you're going to just merrily go along, you know, emitting carbon and then counteract that with geoengineering, then you are basically looking at a world um, that it will be, you know, unrecognizable. It would also be very, very sensitive. I think this is a, an argument you, you raise in the book and I've, I've heard elsewhere, which is, this is what you're talking about. It's imagine the kind of long-term not you, what you're talking about, but what the proponent here is talking about is an extraordinarily long, I mean, maybe indefinite uh, technological project of, you know, running the the solar management operation that would be extremely, re- it would be resource intensive. Um, and it would have to constantly be maintained. And so we would be signing ourselves up for, for this project that has no uh, precedent in human history. And what we do see lots of precedents for in human history are things like really bad pandemics and wars and other f- sources of conflict that could interfere with our ability to carry out uh, said long-term massive uh, global scale project. And, you know, just imagining, you know, a state that says, you know what, you know, I'm not happy with the sanctions that are being uh, uh, issued against me um, based on my my actions. And so if you guys don't get rid of those sanctions, I'm going to start shooting down these planes or or kind of whatever could happen. And if that happens, there's kind of the, the nightmare scenario. Yeah. And I think that this, you know, um, that, the, that the war in Ukraine has, you know, really... Um, I mean, I haven't spoken to any of the, and I, w- I want to say there are very few people who would call themselves proponents of geoengineering at this point. I guess mm-hmm. they would call themselves proponents of researching geoengineering. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, there, there, there was, there was, is work going on on, you know, we get back to the, also this question of governance, you know, we can't get our act together to cut carbon emissions. How can we get our act together to geoengineer? And I think that, you know, this notion that, um, the world was a stable place, at least among the sort of superpowers, Mm -hmm. um, has been shattered. And, uh, that raises, um, that makes it harder you know, to, to imagine, as you would say, uh, this collective project. Now there are people too, I will say, and, and I think it's a very reasonable argument who would say, well, you can never, you know, even, even before the war in Ukraine, you Mm -hmm. know, committing future generations Mm -hmm. to this kind of project, that's not, um, you know, not ethical, not viable, whatever. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, you could say, well, we're committing them to a world mm-hmm. of, you know, melting the Greenland ice sheet. Is that ethical? Is that viable? You know, so so these conversations, um, you know, I guess another theme of Under a White Sky would be, you know, we've kind of run out of the good choices. We've run mm-hmm. through those because we failed to act in a timely way. And COVID, you know, is a, is a, is a very, very... Um, good analogy here too, you know, we ran out of good choices. Now we only have, you know, bad and worse choices in a way. Hmm. Right. And the, and the, and the, one of the things I appreciate about uh, the book in particular is that the, the end, you, you kind of refuse to do the happy ending. <laughs> um, you can kind of explicitly say, I'm not doing that, even though, you know, there are climate communications people that would balk and say, no, 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 you have to leave people with a sense of hope. Um, but, it, but also just think reckoning with the situation that we're in and realizing, it. I personally think that that's an extraordinarily important message as well. Thank but you. Um, I, I suspect you've probably taken heat from some of the, um, some of the climate communications people. But just, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Maybe the kind of just final question is, as someone, you know, you've been a close observer of these issues for, for some time now, um, and, it, and it can get very, very frustrating, and it can get depressing. And obviously, this is an issue that happens with advocates, it happens with scientists, it happens with journalists. Um, and so we need, you know, I do think people often need some source of energy, even if it's not going to be um, uh, kind of delusional optimism. And so I guess my final question is kind of where do you, where does that source of energy come from for you? Maybe it could be anger. It could be, it could be lots of different (laughs) things. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's, as you say, there's a lot of debate in the climate communications world, which I don't really see myself in, you know, I, I'm, Mm -hmm. I see myself, I'm a journalist. We don't control how people respond to, you know, the facts, we, Mm -hmm. our obligation is to the facts. Now, you know, I think what motivates me to a certain extent, and, you know, maybe this is just my personality type or whatever is, is, you know, a certain amount of panic. And Mm -hmm. I think panic can be a motivating force and people should be panicking right now. Um, It's just really, um, you know, we are on a, a glide path to a very hellish, uh, future. Anyone, you know, who is, you know, under 40 or 50 or whatever should be worried. And anyone who has kids who are under 40 or 50 should be, you know, very worried. And that, that should be motivating. I mean, what, what do we do for our kids? You know, all the things that, that we all uh, spend our time worrying about um, for our kids, you know, where they're going to go to school, you know, did they make the soccer team, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, are they going to have a planet to live on that? That should be the motivating, uh, uh, force here.
Yeah. So I wouldn't normally say ending on a, 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 a note of panic is, is exactly <laughs> optimistic, but you know, but whatever. But context is all, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining me for this conversation. I really appreciated the chance to chat with you today. Oh, thanks for having me.